Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, in the King James Version, reads, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's how we pray it each week at our service opening. That's how I learned to pray it when I was a little kid and I would go to Christian school. They would require you to have a Bible. And they put out in parentheses, make sure it's a King James Version. So I learned all of my memory verses, or most of them, from the KJV. We would learn a memory verse pretty much every week. So I have a lot of them in my brain, and they all come out in King James English, which is fine. That's the King James rendition. Below it, I've got the English Standard Version. And it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, period. And that's it. And the part about, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is not in the English Standard Version of the Bible. This Bible here is my personal Bible. I've had it rebound. I've had this Bible since 2004. It's a Holman Christian Standard Bible. I bought it for various reasons. I bought it from Lifeway Christian Bookstore here in Conyers back when they were still an actual tangible store before they went strictly to online sales. I believe that this Bible contains the Word of Yahweh. I believe that with all my heart. It contains the Word of Yahweh. As I read this Bible, I believe I'm getting Yahweh's message that He gave us to live by here on this earth. One day, years ago, I was reading through the book of the prophet Nehemiah, and I was preparing a sermon for the Feast of Tabernacles, and I came across Nehemiah 8.18 in this Bible, my personal Bible. And this verse, Nehemiah 8, 18, part A, is supposed to read, Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last day. But in this Bible, my Bible, it said, Ezra read out of the busk of the law. Now, I immediately thought, surely that's not a Hebrew word. They transliterated it into English. I think the printer messed up and put an S in between the last O and the K. Now, obviously, that's a misprint uh, in the Bible. Maybe you've come across one in your Bible. Uh, It's a fairly easy misprint and not that big of a deal. I mean, it's a big deal. It shouldn't say busk. It should say book (laughs) or books, you know. Um, There was a version of the King James Bible. Uh, The King James Bible was first printed and distributed in 1611 A.D. Uh, Not many years after that, they printed more copies, and in the Ten Commandments there was a misprint, and it was a lot bigger misprint than this one, because instead of saying, Thou shalt not commit adultery, they had a slew of Bibles come off the printer back then, and it said, Thou shalt commit adultery. So they had to gather up all the Bibles that they knew said that and get rid of them and do a reprinting. It was a misprint, obviously, right? And that one has much more strong ramifications than this one. However, there is a mistake in this Bible. Yet I still believe that it is Yahweh's Word and it teaches me the path of life, even though it said that Ezra read out of the busk of the law. What we have here in Matthew 6.13 is a little more complicated than this mistake that I found, but I want to take this sermon to try to simplify it for you. I want to talk about the different readings that can be found in various English translations of the Bible. And I'd like to think about this in relation to the question, 
If different readings exist in various translations of the Bible, how do we know that we have the genuine word of Yahweh? Brother TJ taught a slam dunk sermon on the spiritual sword last week. Both of my sons or two of my sons came into work the next day talking about the sermon and that doesn't happen when dad preaches. <laughs> happens when brother Jerry preaches or when brother TJ preaches. And I said, come on guys, give me a little credit, right? One of my sons, Benjamin, he said, I had to go back home and pull up and listen to the last 10 minutes of the sermon. It was so good, dad. And they instigated the conversation that morning at work. Josiah said that that sermon came in hot. He said it was like a fresh Krispy Kreme donut sign. It came in hot. <laughs> so, praise Yahweh for that sermon. It was good. But how do we know we have the genuine word of Yahweh? Because, like I said, there's a difference here in the KJV and the ESV. Now, I'm not creating a difficulty or a problem. It already exists. I'm just pointing it out. So, how many people have a Bible with them today? If you have a New International Version, NIV, an ESV, English Standard Version, a New Living Translation, all of these have been very popular for quite some time now, you will have in your Bible the shorter reading of Matthew 6, verse 13. Those Bibles do not contain that popular ending of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now there are Bibles that do contain that ending, the King James Version, my 2004 HCSB contains it, even though it's bracketed, it still has it. The New King James Version contains it, and the 1995 edition of the New American Standard Bible contains it. But why is there a difference? Is somebody trying to trick us? Has Satan been up to no good? My reason for teaching this lesson is twofold, two reasons. Number one, people who first learn of these matters they happen to come across them because maybe they're reading two translations and they get worried about the reliability of the Bible. And as a pastor or a teacher, I want to help ease your worry and the worry of anyone that will listen to this lesson. Number two, oftentimes skeptics of the Bible or atheists and agnostics use places like this to spread doubt amongst the believing community in the world. And not only do I want to help ease your worry, I want to help give you an answer to the question of the hope that lies within you. And Peter says we're to give that answer with gentleness and with reverence. But I want to help you be able to answer the skeptic. Now you may not feel up to the challenge, but I believe that every believer ought to be able to defend their faith in some way and to some point. It is perfectly okay. And I know a lot of people in the Torah community throw off on this, but it doesn't matter. I point out traditions and errors in the Torah community just like I do in any denomination. Some people don't like this, but it is perfectly okay for you to arrive at a certain point in your understanding where you lack and you refer somebody to a pastor or elder in the faith. All through the Bible they had elders. All the way back to the time of Prophet Moses when Jethro, his father-in-law, said, you don't need to bear the weight all on yourself. Choose able men to help you lead as elders in the community. And when they come to bring matters to the elders, let them handle the smaller issues and anything that is too difficult, then they'll bring it to you. So they came to the elders. It's all through the Bible. So there's nothing wrong with, with that when you deal with heavy matters. But a pastor slash teacher slash elder is not always beside you and you should be able at least to converse to some degree with other people about these matters. You should. 
you should know the Bible well enough to have a conversation about even this subject. Variations in text and readings is a reality of Holy Scripture. Once again, I didn't make this up. I'm just pointing out what is a reality. But it is not as big of a deal as some people make it out to be. Now, I will say here that King James only people bring up these variations too, but they do so in an attempt to say that all Bibles that do not read exactly like the King James Version are satanic, and these other Bibles are perversions instead of actual versions, and they remove verses for wicked reasons. This is what staunch King James only people say. Now, I'm not against the King James Version. I believe it's a great translation of the Bible. I think it was excellent for its time, and I think it's a masterpiece when it comes to literature, and it reads like Shakespearean English. But I am against King James onlyism, where somebody thinks that the 1611 King James, or in reality, they don't use 1611, they use the 1769 edition. Most people use a version based off the 1769 edition, which is different than the 1611 edition, mind you. It's not, they don't read identical. But I'm against King James only people that say, that's the Word of God, don't bring me anything else, that's the end all and tell all. And that's just false. It's just inaccurate. And I'm going to show you why today. But from the get-go, we need to realize that the King James Version is not the standard. It's not the standard by which we judge everything else or we judge what the Word of Yahweh is. This is important. The King James Version would not exist if not for Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts of Scripture that scholars translate from. I have a 1611 reprint at my house, and in the beginning there is a preface that was written by the translators and the scholars of that Bible. And they didn't believe that their translation was infallible. And they said that as time progressed, there would have to be discoveries that would be made and changes that would be made and read this with a grain of salt. We've added footnotes in so you can see alternate readings that we found even in the manuscripts that we've used. But the handwritten manuscripts are the standard, not a 17th century English translation of the Bible. It's important to recognize that when Yahweh inspired His Word, the initial authors of Scripture were inspired. What they wrote was Elohim breathed. In 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, the King James says all Scripture is inspired of the Almighty. Some Bibles say God breathed or Elohim breathed. And that's a better translation of the Greek word theopneustos, which literally means the Almighty breathed it out. That's talking about the initial authors, the actual autographs, uh, the initial authors of sacred Scripture. He chose specific men to write down His words. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. Brother TJ mentioned this one last week as well. It says, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, but holy men of old. Peter's talking about going back to the Older Testament. He said, Holy men of old wrote as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's talking about the initial authors. These men were carried along by the Spirit of Yahweh as they wrote. But catch this, even those men did not go into a trance and start writing. Yahweh inspired their writings and He divinely led them, but He also used their different perspectives, talents, strengths, weaknesses, and personalities. So what these men wrote was first the word that Yahweh gave to them, but it was also their words. 
in the sense that they were the vessels that it was written through. Yahweh used men to write His Word. Now, when someone came along later to make, let's say, a copy of a book of Scripture, like a copy of Deuteronomy or the Gospel of Luke, that copyist was not inspired like the initial author. Case in point, Nehemiah 8.18, HCSB, Ezra read out of the Busk of the law. That's not inspired. That's a copy, even in our modern time. Now, the copyist would likely be a devout individual concerned about getting the content and meaning of the book across in their copy. In the early uh, church, in early uh, Messianic faith, or early Christianity, before anybody had or were, were blessed to have a Bible like this, and they somehow had somebody that day there at the assembly with one of Peter's letters, let's say First Peter, and somebody said, do you mind if I borrow that tonight? and I write out a copy of First Peter so we can have it at our congregation. And that person was devout, and they went home and they would make a copy. And because the error is human, a copy wouldn't be identical in every respect to the original. They were human just like us, no matter how devout, and they made mistakes no matter how hard they tried not to. My Bible says, Busk in Nehemiah 8.18, and this is the age of computers, spell check, and multiple editors. One person, think about this in contrast to an ancient copyist, who would be one person sitting down with a manuscript under the light of a candle, dipping their quill pen into ink, no eraser, limited materials. They may not want to make mistakes, but to err is human. Now add to this multiple copyists, various streams of manuscripts, and the mistakes begin to multiply. This does not mean, however, that we cannot get the word of Yahweh from a copy. Nor does it mean we can't get back to what the original inspired author wrote in that first manuscript. Let me give you an example. If I asked each one of you to go home tonight and copy the book of 1 Timothy by hand, out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible and then bring me your handwritten copy in the morning. The odds are high and great that no two copies would be identical. Somebody would misspell a word and someone else would skip a line. Someone would leave out a comma or a period and somebody else would write down something by not looking at the Bible because they think they already have that part memorized so they read what they have memorized in their mind. So y'all would bring me, let's say, roughly 30 copies of 1 Timothy and they would all read a little bit different. Yet, I believe, overall, they would all contain the message of 1 Timothy. And we could spend some time comparing all 30 and we could arrive at the original reading or very close to the original reading of the HCSB template. But even in each individual manuscript of your copies with your mistakes, I would still get the content and the message of Paul to Timothy. Now, we're dealing with a lot more copies than 30 when we talk about the Bible or even the New Testament. There's almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, not to mention the manuscripts in other languages like Aramaic and Ethiopic and Coptic and Latin and, and all of that, and some even in, in Hebrew. So we're dealing with a lot of copies of the Bible, and that's just the New Testament. But the same principle applies. The reason that you have that Bible in your hands that you love 
the reason you have it in your hand is because of the hard work of scholars. That's the reason. Now I have on the screen part of the New King James Version Translation Committee. This is a picture taken from around 1975. But there were 130 total scholars and church leaders on the New King James Version Committee. Now I've heard people say before, I don't need scholars. I just need my Bible. That is an ignorant statement. You would not have a Bible if it were not for scholars. Learned men and women who have committed their lives to understanding ancient languages and examining ancient manuscripts, they devote their study and their time to these matters so that you can go to the store and buy an English translation of the Bible and have confidence that you're reading the Word of Yahweh. There are Hebrew and Greek texts of Scripture that are printed today that have done all this hard work for us already. A community of Bible scholars have combed through all the available manuscripts which neither you nor me can read. They've done that hard work for us and they have brought out what they believe to be the best readings. Yet still, they're good enough to supply us with the alternate readings, a lot of times in the footnotes, so that you can see as a layperson, you can see the info in a nutshell and you can decide for yourself which reading is the best. I want to recommend some Bibles to you. There are some Bible translations that I think are better than others. I do think that we probably have too many translations of the Bible. And I do think that some are not good. But I do think that the majority of ones, especially done by a committee where you have a hundred people, they're comparing notes, they're comparing thoughts, they're saying which reading is best, how are we going to best translate this from Hebrew to English, from Greek to English. Uh, one of my favorites, if not my favorite Bible to read, not because I necessarily believe it's the best translation, but my favorite Bible to read is the one I have up here, the HCSB. I chose this Bible in 2004 because it was one of the first modern versions of the Bible that used the name Yahweh over 600 times in the Old Testament. Now that's not good enough, but that's a start. And I like that. And I thought, well, if I can buy this Bible at a Christian bookstore and I witness to somebody and I can show them Exodus 3.15 here, that Yahweh is my name forever, the Almighty said, maybe they'll listen because they're going to ask me, where'd you get that Bible? And I'm going to say, I got it at Lifeway. I got it at Lifeway. So they'll think this isn't a cult Bible. <laughs> he got it at a Christian bookstore, right? But also I bought this Bible because of its, its great balance between what's called word-for-word equivalency and meaning-for-meaning -meaning equivalency. Uh, some Bibles read choppy, KJV, NASB. They read more choppy because they're more word-for-word -word equivalency. They're not as interested in making a sentence flow. Other Bibles read more periphrastic. The New Living Translation reads like a paraphrase because they're meaning for meaning. The, the HCSB, I think, gives us the best of both worlds. It tries to balance that word for word and meaning for meaning equivalency, both of which have their part in Bible translation. So the HCSB, like mine here, will have brief footnotes at the bottom of the page where there is an alternate reading in the manuscripts, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 6.13, our text today, For thine is the kingdom, my Bible places that final sentence of the Lord's Prayer in brackets so that the reader knows the sentence exists in some manuscripts but not in others. 
Their footnote simply says, other manuscripts omit bracketed text. The New King James Version is helpful here as well. When there is a text in the Newer Testament with alternate readings, the New King James Version will put what's called, I don't want to confuse you, listen carefully, they'll put what's called the critical text reading and the majority text reading at the bottom of the page for the New Testament. Now what I'm talking about tonight is textual criticism. That's the fancy name for it. And when somebody just wants to argue with that, they say, why do you want to criticize the Bible? Well, let me tell you that when scholars use the word textual criticism or the critical reading, they're not using the word criticize in our modern day way. Uh, the 1828 Webster's definition of critical is a person or a critic is a person that's skilled in judging or examining of the merit of literary works. It basically means somebody that researches handwritten manuscripts, textual critic or textual criticism. So it doesn't mean anybody's trying to criticize the Bible. When the New King James Version places the critical reading at the bottom of the page, what the critical reading does is it examines all of the available manuscripts of the New Testament. If there was one discovered tomorrow, they would take that one into account and they would examine all of the available readings as a committee of scholars and they would determine based upon the best reading by examining all the manuscripts, that would be what's called the critical reading. And then there's the majority text. The New King James Version puts the majority text reading at the bottom of the page, and that is exactly like it sounds. That means that they've examined all the manuscripts, and the majority of the manuscripts read this way. And some scholars take that view. I'm more of a critical text man myself. So you have the decision in the New King James Version, you have the decision of their committee, in the actual text, but when an alternate reading exists at the bottom, you'll have the critical text reading and the majority text reading. I think the NKJV is a good one, a good Bible to have. Next is the New English Translation. This is a newer Bible translation that's come out in the 21st century. You can buy one online at a bookstore, but you can also go to netbible.org and you will have right at your fingertips over 60,000 footnotes that deal with alternate manuscript readings. 60,000 footnotes. Somebody's done a lot of work. Let's look at what they say at Matthew 6.13 since that's what we're dealing with here. In Matthew 6.13 in the Net Bible, there's a footnote and it says, Most manuscripts read, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here. The reading without this sentence though, is attested by generally better witnesses. The phrase was probably composed for the liturgy of the early church and most likely was based on 1 Chronicles 29, 11-13. A scribe probably added the phrase at this point in the text for use in public scripture reading. Both external and internal evidence argue for the shorter reading. So this is why they've gone with a shorter reading. It's based on what they consider better manuscripts of the New Testament, which generally better means older manuscripts of the New Testament. Manuscripts which the King James translators did not have because they had not been discovered back in the 17th century. So it's pretty much common sense that the closer you get to the original in time, the closer you get to the original in meaning. Now, let me ask you this. 
does the longer reading found in most manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, thine is the kingdom, does that longer reading contradict anything else in Scripture? No. Is it wrong to speak of Yahweh having the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever? No. But that's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, what did Matthew, Matithyahu, the author of this gospel, what did he originally write? That's the question we need to ask. What did he write? The older manuscripts of the New Testament, of the Gospel of Matthew, do not contain that last part of the Lord's Prayer. But as the copies of Matthew progress and get newer, closer to us in time, we begin to see this added sentence take form. What probably happened is exactly what the NET footnote stated. Now, if you go back and read 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13, you find a prayer of King David. Now, I want to read those words here. I want you to notice some key words as we read. This text of Scripture says, Then David praised Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, May you be praised, Yahweh Elohim of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. There's the idea of forever. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. How long? Forever. There's that idea from eternity to eternity. Then he says, Yours, Yahweh, is the greatness and the power. That sounds similar, doesn't it? Matthew 6, 13. Thine is the kingdom and the power. Then it, David says, And the glory, Matthew 6, 13, And the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Yahweh, is the kingdom. Matthew 6, 13. And you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. In your hand are power and might, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our Elohim, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Now, my Bible background commentary that I have in my library on the New Testament by Dr. Craig Keener, it says that this verse, because Jewish prayers were commonly used in liturgical contexts that ended with a statement of praise, Later text's addition of the benediction, Thine is the kingdom, to the original text of Matthew is not surprising. Dr. Keener, what he means here when he says liturgical, liturgical means public worship, like what we're doing right now. Don't let the word liturgy scare you or liturgical scare you. It means public worship. And a benediction means a blessing. You may have heard the word doxology, which means a statement of praise or a statement of honor. The point here is that this prayer in Matthew 6.13, the Lord's Prayer, it came to be used in the public worship setting of believers. That makes sense because our Messiah said, pray like this. Pray like this. Don't pray like the heathens. They think they'll be heard because they speak a lot and they babble and babble and babble. But you pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven. So it makes sense that Christians or Messianic folk, they would begin to pray this prayer in the public gathering setting. And they saw it fitting that when they ended the prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that they added, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And they added it because they were familiar with the prayer that King David, one of the most righteous men in Scripture, prayed back in 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13. So they borrowed that blessing, that benediction or doxology from David's prayer, and they added it on to the end of the Lord's Prayer because it's scriptural. It's just not what Matthew originally wrote. Now, scribes that copied a manuscript of Matthew's gospel that did not contain that ending 
would not have considered adding that ending in their copy as making a corruption of anything. No scribe would have thought, well, I'm corrupting Scripture by placing in the benediction from David's prayer into the Lord's prayer. The command in Scripture, Brother TJ and I talked about this this week, the command in Scripture not to add to or take away has to do with not adding or subtracting commandments. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 and Deuteronomy 12 verse 32, you read the context of those passages. And I think Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 is probably talking about not adding to or taking away from the book of Deuteronomy. But, in a larger sense, the entirety of the Torah. In other words, don't add commandments and don't take away commandments. You know, it's okay to have traditions that you keep as long as they don't violate commandments. There's nothing wrong with a tradition. As long as they don't violate commandments and as long as you don't start or I don't start as a pastor elevating a tradition to the status of a commandment and saying because one of you doesn't keep the tradition like I see it that you're in sin or you're wrong. Well, then I would be making the word of Yahweh of none effect, right? There's another text in Revelation 22, 18 through 19 that says, do not add to or take away from the words of the prophecy of this book. And it's specifically about the book of Revelation. Don't add to that prophecy or take away from that prophecy. But in a larger sense, I think this is okay. I think it's talking about don't add to or take away from any prophetic utterances. Because words of prophecy are often prophets saying, thus saith Yahweh. And then Yahweh speaks. He speaks through the prophet or the prophetess. But it's Yahweh that is speaking. So those texts don't have anything to do with expanding understanding through commentary. I'm giving commentary right now as I speak. I've talked with some people in the Torah community. And this rubs me the wrong way because they say I don't read commentaries. I just read the Bible. But then you know what they do? Then they start to give me their commentary on that scripture. <laughs> well, this is what I believe about that scripture. All you're doing when you read a commentary, you don't have to agree with everything that it says. All you're doing is you're acknowledging that people throughout history have done exactly like we've done. They've read and studied the Bible too. And they've wrote their thoughts down too. And it's pride to not read what they have written. It's pride to think that only you, after all these years, only you can come up with what is right. So it's okay to read commentaries. You don't have to agree with them all. I read them all the time. A lot of times I disagree with them, but sometimes I say, boy, Adam Clark made a good point. Albert Barnes made a good point. T.J. Martin, Brother Jerry made a good point in their commentary, in their sermon. That added to my arsenal. I put it in my backpack like Brother Jerry preached because it was good. They weren't trying to add to the, the meaning of Scripture. They were just trying to expound upon what it meant, what it taught. So there's nothing wrong with a scribe adding this to the Gospel of Matthew. There's nothing wrong with us praying for thine is the kingdom. David prayed it. Nothing wrong with us praying that at all. The reason that alternate readings exist in biblical manuscripts is because copyists are human and make errors as they copy. But it's also, it's also because there are sometimes alterations done by copyists on purpose. They make changes to a manuscript on purpose, not because they're trying to be devilish or diabolical or, or messengers of Satan, but because they're trying to add an important comment to the text or a scribe or a copyist might try to make a correction to something that they thought was error in the manuscript they were looking at, but the reality was there wasn't an error in the manuscript they were looking at. 
Now, most of these differences or alternate readings are minor and unimportant. As a matter of fact, I'm going to play a clip here by one of the world's foremost leading scholars in textual criticism named Daniel Wallace. And Daniel Wallace says that about 99% of the variations in the manuscripts have to do with spelling, alternate word orders, and fuller readings. Let me talk about them here for just a few seconds before I play this, this clip. What do I mean by fuller readings? If you'll notice in the King James Version, a lot of times when it uses the word Jesus, it'll say Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ. And then you go to an HCSB and where the KJV might say Lord Jesus Christ, the HCSB will just say Jesus. King James only people say they're taken away from the honor to the Lord. You've got to say Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just say Jesus the tendency of scribes that copied manuscripts was out of honor for the Messiah. That when a text just read Yeshua, they would put Lord or Master Yeshua or Master Yeshua the Messiah, even though the text didn't read Master and Messiah in every case where the name Yeshua was. And they did it out of an honor, and that's not changing the meaning of the text. It's just a fuller reading as copies get newer, but the older readings oftentimes, not all times, but oftentimes would just say Yeshua. And that's an example of uh, fuller readings. Um, let me let Daniel Wallace explain the alternate word order. Now we get to the second section, the nature of the variants. What kinds of variants are there in the manuscripts? Well, more than 99% make virtually no difference at all. For example, the most common variant involves spelling. And uh, this is... Sorry about that. The absolutely most common textual variant is what's called a movable new. That's N at the end of a word when the next word starts with a vowel, like our word uh, A book, an apple, same kind of principle. Well, then there's alterations that cannot be translated. They can't be translated because Greek is a highly inflected language. You can put three words, Jesus loves Paul, in any order you want in a sentence, and it can mean exactly the same thing. Word order has to do with emphasis, but not meaning because of the inflections on the ends of the words. But not only does Greek have a highly inflected language, it also uses the definite article, the word the, in ways that we don't use it in English. You could say, the Joseph and the Mary went to Jerusalem, as Luke does in chapter 3 of his gospel. We would say Joseph and Mary, not the Joseph and the Mary. That sounds like a doofus. But that's ancient Greek, and that's how it was. Now, I wrote my master's thesis on when the article does not occur in the Greek New Testament. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on when the definite article does occur in the Greek New Testament. These two works could cure the most hopeless insomniac. And I still don't know why the is used with proper names. It may be significant, and it's a lot of textual problems that have that, but it's not that significant. So here's how many ways you can say Jesus loves Paul in Greek. Please write this down because it will be on the test. Eight different ways you can say it. Oh, here's another eight ways you can say it. Now, if you factor in different spellings for these words, or what's called nomina sacra, or particles that uh, uh, typically are not translated, there are literally hundreds of ways to say Jesus loves Paul in Greek, where every single time it's translated exactly the same in English. Now, if a three-word sentence like this could potentially be expressed by hundreds of Greek constructions, 
how should we view the number of actual variants in the New Testament manuscripts? That there are only three variants for every word in the New Testament when the potential is almost infinitely greater seems trivial, especially when we consider how many thousands of manuscripts there are. Once again, about 99% of the variations in the New Testament manuscripts is what he's specifically talking about are of no meaningful, viable difference. Spelling, word order, alternate readings, fuller readings, skipping a line because of the same word occurring in a paragraph, the meanings do not change. Now, I don't want to say that there are no meaningful variants in the Bible because there are. One of the most popular ones is in 1 John 5, 7 through 8, where a lot of the newer Bibles will just read, there are three that bear witness on the earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. But if you pick up a King James Version, it'll say, and there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Spirit, and the Word, something like that, and these three are one. And that's the most explicit text in the KJV for the Trinitarian doctrine. And most scholars today will acknowledge that that is a later edition that a scribe put into a footnote and then a later scribe inserted into the text of 1 John 5. That's a meaningful variant, but that's something we can know by studying manuscripts. A couple of other cases is the last 11 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 are probably not original to the Gospel of Mark. You know that part where it says you can drink poison and handle serpents and you'll be okay. We might want to tell the people in Appalachia Mountains in North Carolina that maybe that verse wasn't in Mark's Gospel originally, <laughs> right? Um, maybe they will stop handling snakes because that's the verse that they go to. Um, but those verses are probably not in the original. They do not are, or are not attested to by the best witnesses of the Gospel of Mark. Mark probably ended at verse 8. Another one is in John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, where there's a story of the woman that was taken in the very act of adultery. That was probably not original to the Bible. And a lot of the newer translations will leave it out or put it in bracketed text. That doesn't mean that it necessarily didn't happen. It might have been a story handed down through oral tradition. Maybe it was real, maybe it wasn't. It probably wasn't original to John's gospel. We, we can understand these things, once again, by comparing all of the readings of the New Testament manuscripts. And then when you deal with the Old Testament, you deal with what's called the Hebrew Masoretic Text, you deal with the Greek Septuagint, you deal with the Samaritan Pentateuch, and you deal with other translations of the Old Testament. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s was very, very important, and it showed us some alternate readings but yet some similar readings as well. Didn't change the overall meaning of, of the Bible as a whole, but there are some specific readings that I do think make a difference. So I'm not saying that no alter, alternate readings make a difference at all. I'm just saying the majority of them do not. I want to show you as I close today one example from this chart that I see going around on Facebook every now and then. Whenever I see a chart like this, it makes me grit my teeth because I know somebody was ignorant and shared it and didn't know what they were talking about. And I know that might sound harsh and mean, but it's true and it needs to stop because it's just wrong. I see a person share a chart like this on Facebook 
And then they'll make a statement like, look at how they changed the Bible. Or this is why I stick with the King James Version. These statements are ignorant, dishonest, misleading, and I believe they can even be sinful because the person sharing it is spreading a false report. Exodus 23 verse 1 says, you shall not spread a false report. So if you'll see on the chart, we have a bunch of verses listed on the left. The KJV, all of them say yes because the KJV includes what these verses say. And then with the NIV, New International Version, New American Standard Version, New Century Version, New Revised Standard Version, and Revised Standard Version, it says removed. And it's in bright red, probably to make you think that Satan did it because they think that red is the devil's color, even though the virtuous woman was clothed in scarlet. What this chart fails to do is explain that these modern versions of the Bible have omitted these verses. Not because they are trying to change the Bible, but because they're trying to get back to the original reading of the Bible. It's just as wrong to add to as it is to take away from. Sometimes we forget that. And maybe the KJV has added to. Now the King James Version, at least the New Testament, was based upon approximately a dozen printed Greek texts of the New Testament. Now, since the 1500s, when they started that, those printed Greek texts of the New Testament, since the 1500s, more and older manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered. And these older manuscripts that were discovered did not change the overall message of the Bible, but they did show where scribal or copyist additions had been made as copies and more copies and more copies were done of the New Testament manuscripts. So it's not that these modern Bibles have subtracted something. It's actually that the King James Version has added something. But let me say this as well. Because the King James translators were highly intelligent men. Way smarter than me. And the King James translators were not trying to change anything either when they were translating the Bible from the available manuscript or printed editions that they had. They weren't trying to change anything. They were just going by what they had available to them at that time. They were doing the best that they could, and that's why in their preface they said, as languages change and as time progresses and as discoveries are made, new translations will have to come to light. And there's been some very good ones come to light. Let's look at one verse on this chart. Matthew 18, verse 11. In the King James Version, this is part of a discourse from Matthew 18, 10 through 14 about lost souls being found. I'd like to read it here on the screen. It says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And verse 11 is the verse under question that the newer Bibles don't have, but the KJV has verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Basically, the same thought continues in 12 through 14. Now, in the New International Version, the NIV, verse 11 is not there. It just skips from verse 10 to verse 12. The NIV adds a footnote here that speaks of the verse existing in later manuscripts. The New English Translation, that net Bible I showed earlier with the 60,000 plus footnotes, they add a footnote here explaining the reason behind leaving the verse out of their translation. You'll notice here on the screen in the Net Bible, verse 10 says, See that you do not disdain one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Then it's got a footnote, but there's no verse 11. It just goes to verse 12. 
the footnote explains their reason for leaving verse 11 out. Now, King James only people will say, see, the NIV and NET are trying to take away from the saving power of Christ. He's got saving power. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The NIV removes that. The NET removes that because they don't believe in the saving power of Christ. Hogwash. That's wrong. That's ignorant. That's not right at all. They make these extraordinary claims when all we have to do is slow down and look at the manuscript evidence. The NIV and the NET leave Matthew 18.11 out of their text for this reason. The best and oldest manuscripts of the New Testament Gospel of Matthew do not contain that verse. That's why they leave it out. What the NET explains in their footnote here is that a scribe, a copyist, was probably familiar with this phrase elsewhere and he added the phrase about the Son of Man coming to save the lost into the Gospel of Matthew. And guess what? In both the NIV and the NET, in Luke chapter 19 verse 10, in that famous story about Zacchaeus, the wee little man that climbed the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, in Luke 19.10 it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So the very verse that the KJV only people, the staunch ones, holler about these translations leaving out of Matthew chapter 18, verse 11, that exact verse is in Luke 19, verse 10. And a copyist familiar with that in Luke probably thought that would go good here in this story in Matthew 18. Wasn't trying to change the message of the Bible. It's a true statement that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I don't think the copyist did anything wrong right there. But it's not what Matthew originally wrote. If Matthew didn't write that phrase and Luke did, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Let me make four points here at the end. Point number one, I'm here as a pastor and a teacher to help you in matters like this. I know this was more of a technical sermon. We need these kind of sermons. It's okay to have the encouraging, the feel-good sermons. Those are great. But we also need the technical ones as well. We're here to equip the flock. I'm here to help you in matters like this. If you come across a verse that you find in one Bible and it's missing in another one, you can come to me and ask me. And if I don't know, I'll help you figure it out. We'll figure it out together. I'm here to help you. Number two, I think it will be great if you got yourself a New King James Version or a New English Translation Bible. Uh, you can buy these leather bound or you can probably look both of them up online. I know you can look up the Net Bible online at netbible.org. The reason I recommend these two Bibles and especially the Net Bible is because it will tell you all of the places where the variations occur. They're right open with all the information. Number three, which goes along with two, look for the answers yourself. We have more information available to us now than ever before right at our fingertips. I did a job not long ago for a pilot. He told me, he said, there is more power in that iPhone that you're holding than a World War II fighter jet. <laughs> There's more technology in that iPhone. We have information at our fingertips. We can look stuff up on the internet. We have Bible apps and Bible programs and I have, the, I mean, so many different translations and commentaries and dictionaries and encyclopedias right on my little phone where I can answer questions that people text me throughout the week and message me throughout the week just like that. 
So do work for yourself. Look up answers for yourself. And lastly, but not least, be honest with the available evidence no matter where it leads you. Just be honest. I was witnessing to somebody about the oneness of Yahweh that I believe in. And we were talking about the Trinitarian doctrine and I asked them, I said, where would you go to prove the Trinity to me? And they took me to 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And I told this young man, and I could tell it shocked him. I told him, I said, that verse is actually a later scribal addition into the gospel or to the book of 1 John. John did not write, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. He didn't write it. No Greek manuscript until about the 1400s contained that verse. So it's not in there. It shocked him. I tried to explain some more to him. I think he was so much in shock, I'm not sure he listened to anything else that I had to say. I quoted him the Shema, which there's no variation on. Hero Israel, Yahweh, our mighty one, is one Yahweh. There's only one Yahweh. Not two, not three, not a dozen. Be honest with the available evidence. If you hear somebody say, well, that verse is probably not original, go back and check it out. Uh, don't say it unless it's true and unless you've checked it out. I hope that you've learned some things in this lesson. Do you love Yahweh today? Amen. So I'll pray and then we'll do our testimony and prayer request service. Heavenly Father, thank You for knowledge and wisdom. Thank You for Your people. Um, I pray, Yahweh, that some of what I said, Father Yahweh, would stick with each and every person today, that they go back over the